Amen. Amen. Let's see. <clears throat> I, uh, I've got three boys, for those of you who don't know, and our oldest, a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, actually started begging us to get him a pet fish. And uh, my policy on fish is that I prefer them fried, grilled, or baked. Not alive in my house. So we made him an offer, and we told him, okay, if you can memorize the books of the New Testament, we'll get you a fish. Okay. A day and a half later, I listened as victoriously he finished up with Jude and Revelation. And so we changed the rules of the agreement. And we told him, uh, if you can help your three-year-old brother memorize the books of the New Testament, we'll get you two fish. He knew that was dirty. <laughs> but I'm dad, and I make the rules. He doesn't. There's your parenting lesson for the day, folks. And so uh, we go to the, the pet store, and we're going to buy goldfish. But when I get a five-gallon aquarium and I put it in our basket, the woman helping us looks at me with horror. And she says, if you put a goldfish in anything smaller than a 30-gallon tank, you are sentencing him to a cruel death. And I said, oh. <laughs> How do they taste fried? <laughs> so we got a five-gallon aquarium, and we got two beta fish. How many of you have set up an aquarium before? Have you ever done that? Yes, yeah, some of you have made some promises to your children, I see. You know, it's kind of a fun process. It's a learning process for us. I'd never done it before. So you get some gravel or some sand, you put that in the bottom, and then you get, you know, some fake plants and maybe a sunken pirate ship. And if you get two beta fish, you've got to get a divider in the middle of the aquarium because they're cannibals, beta fish are. So you do all that, and then it comes the moment where you start filling it up with water. And you, so you take it to the sink, and you start filling it up with tap water. But the problem is that the water you and I drink out of the tap is not safe for fish. Okay, there's, there's chemicals in that water that make it safe for us that fish can't tolerate. So you know what you do? You take conditioner, and not the kind your wife has in the shower. It's much more expensive than that. And you put just a couple of drops of that conditioner into this five-gallon aquarium, and those couple of drops begin to work through the whole aquarium, changing the makeup of that water, <clears throat> changing it from something that's toxic to those fish to something that's safe, some into this place where they will thrive in that water. And it's fascinating that just a couple of drops of that conditioner does that. So have you ever been working on something trivial, like setting up an aquarium, and thinking about something much more significant and important, and something clicks? And you realize how much sense that trivial thing makes of that much more important thing. And then you can't think about that more important thing without thinking about an aquarium. Well, I'm in that spot when it comes to elders. So as Chris shared last week, we are in this process of elder selection. We're, we are nominating men who will lead this church as servant leaders. And this is an incredibly important process. It means a lot to me, and it should mean a lot to you. And before you check out, if you're thinking, well, he's talking about elders that may not apply to me, or I don't know who I'm going to nominate to elders, and I'm sure somebody will figure out, it'll, it'll turn out all right. Let me, let me make this point really clearly, right? That our elders shape the environment of this church. 
And I'm struck as I think about how you set up that aquarium with this conditioner, that the conditioner doesn't change the environment by like following an instruction manual. It's not so much by what it does, okay? The conditioner changes the environment because of what it's made of. It's made of the right kind of stuff to interact rightly with the water and turn it into the right kind of environment. And the more I look at the biblical passages about elders, the more convinced I am that the character, okay, so what our elders are made of, shapes the environment of our church. And so it matters tremendously to me, those that we select to lead this church, and it should matter to you because you'll taste it here. So here's what I want to do today. I want to look at the important passages to consider when it comes to selecting elders so that as you go from here and you fill out your nomination forms, which are available in the commons, also available online, you can keep these passages in mind. So the first passage that we tend to think about is in 1 Timothy 3. We're going to read for a little bit, but this is really important stuff. I don't want to breeze through it, and then we'll process after we read it. The first passage is in 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he'll not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. All right, secondly, let's look at Titus. This is Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5, if you're taking notes. The reason I left you in Crete, and again, this is Paul talking to both Timothy and Titus here. Here he's talking to Titus. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must also be blameless, Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what's good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Okay. Now, these are the two primary passages that we tend to consider when it comes to selecting men to function as elders in any church. But I want to challenge you by saying there are at least three other very important passages that we need to look at and that you need to consider as you are considering elders for this church. So the first one of those is in 1 Peter. So let's look at that. Now, this is Peter talking to his church. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, Chris preached about that last week, 
you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Okay, and then lastly, two more passages. But chronologically, these aren't, fir- these aren't last, they're first. And these are in the Old Testament. They're in Exodus and Deuteronomy. They're describing the kind of men that Moses was looking for when he was selecting elders over the people of Israel as they're wandering in the desert. And we might think, you know, these passages don't really apply to a a New Testament church, except that these New Testament churches that Timothy was working with, that Titus was working with, that Peter was working with, did not have access to each other's lists, but they most certainly would have used these lists in Exodus and Deuteronomy. As we see in the New Testament, they use their Old Testament all the time, right? So the first one of those is in Exodus 18, where, where where we read this. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And lastly, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 13. Choose some wise, understanding, respected men from each of your tribes, and I'll set them over you. Hear the disputes between your people. Judge fairly whether this case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Don't show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. Okay, that's a lot, right? You may be a little bit overwhelmed as you read through all those qualities. For the record, if you were to add up all those qualities in all five lists, you would have a list that's over 50 qualities long. Now, does it seem impossible to find someone who could check every one of those boxes? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And it also seems pretty impossible to keep in mind all 50 of those qualities as you begin to look for candidates who you might recommend. Okay, well, firstly, let's think about what kind of literature this is. In the Bible, you've got lots of kinds of literature. You have poetry, like in the Psalms. You have narrative, like in the Gospels. You have prophecy, like you see in the prophets of the Old Testament, like you see in Revelation, which we might call apocalyptic. And each of those kinds of literature functions a little bit differently. What these lists are is what we would call a character sketch. Character sketches are really common in ancient literature. You have character sketches describing the ideal general, the ideal politician, the ideal dad, the ideal mom. You have those in scripture as well. So the one that comes to mind for me is Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman or wife. You may know this passage. Okay, how many of you have been at a funeral of some senior saint, some godly woman, this wonderful mother and grandmother, and somebody reads Proverbs 31 to describe her. I mean, can you imagine being at that funeral and they're reading along in Proverbs 31 and somebody says, (coughs) well, Mima, she never planted a vineyard. Verse 16, it's clear as day. We're going to need to read, read a different passage. Right, you wouldn't do that at a funeral, right? Because it's a character sketch. It's this picture of this virtuous woman. And so how does a character sketch work? Think about it like this. Lindsay's dad was a Dallas detective for 40 years, and he's talked to me about the way a forensic artist works. And so he comes onto this crime scene, and he's talking to witnesses to try to get a picture, to draw this picture of what this suspect looked like. And they say, well, you know, he had short short spiky hair, kind of blondish brown, and he had an earring for sure, so he's drawing that. And, and another person's like, well, you know, he, his, his eyes were this color and he had tattoos all over his arms. That's, that's what I remember about him. The other one said he had this little patch of hair right here. And he says, oh, you're, you're, you're describing Brecian. <laughs> no, that's a low blow, low blow. 
right? Okay, so he's, he's drawing this sketch. And so here's how that sketch works. Then you go into this lineup in the police headquarters and you're looking at all these suspects and you hold that sketch up and what you're trying to pick out is who resembles this guy. I mean, oh yeah, yeah, that could be him. You know, his ears are a little bigger, his nose is a little smaller, but yeah, yeah, that could be him. That's how a character sketch works. I probably need to get away from the criminal analogy when it comes to our elders, but you get what I'm going for, right? <laughs> you know, if a sketch is what we're looking at in these five lists, ask yourself this, what are the defining features that stick out? Okay, what are the defining features? So Lynn Anderson, who's a prominent preacher in our movement for, for many years, he, he narrowed down these lists of over 50 qualities into three categories. And he says, when you're looking for an elder, you're looking for men of character, men of experience, and men of vision, men of character, men of experience, and men of vision. Okay, so to help us, what I've tried to do is to take those 50 qualities and group them under these headings. So we're gonna throw up the next slide behind me and you'll see that we've tried to group them under those headings. You can just leave that slide up for a few minutes as I work through these sections. All right, firstly, men of experience. Well, elder means older, that's what it means. Now, don't get caught up on a specific age in mind. You know, people in this era lived much shorter, for one. And also, let me remind you that some of our longest-serving elders currently started when they were in their late 30s. So we, we, we tend to have some magical number in mind for all of us. Let that number go. What we're looking for is somebody with experience, enough experience that they have managed some life. And as Exodus says, it's proved that they're, they're capable at this point. And not only life experience, but they're experienced with, with Jesus. That's why Paul says that they shouldn't be a recent convert. Not only are they experienced with Jesus, but they're experienced with the word of God that we find in scripture, or else how would they hold, trustworthy, hold firmly to the trustworthy message or to sound doctrine as we read in Titus? Okay, they're men of experience. But experience is not enough. And if you were hiring somebody for a job and you had this like big pile of resumes sitting on your desk, you might use experience to cull through that list and narrow it down. But then if you were doing a good job, what you would do is interview these folks because experience might give you some clues about who they are. But what you really want to know is if they've got character. I mean, think about like Bernie Madoff. You remember Bernie Madoff? stole $64 billion from his clients in the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. You know how old Bernie is? He's 81 years old. The man has experience. But what what did he lack? Character. And you might say, well, I'd never make Bernie Madoff an elder of the church. Well, people gave him $64 billion of their money. So we might surprise ourselves. And why is that? Because experience is easy to see. Okay, but character is much harder to see. You know, experience is what's on the outside and character is what's on the inside. But in these passages, what actually takes center stage, what rises to the top is not so much experience. What rises to the, to the top is character. Their character is the lens through which we should view their experience and not the other way around. And so we're looking for men who are trustworthy, who are fair, who are self-controlled, who are not violent, who are hospitable, who are not greedy, not corruptible. And if so, then those are the kind of men worthy of being examples to this flock as we read in 1 Peter. And then lastly, let's talk about men of vision. I think maybe a better way to describe this would be men of perspective. 
But really the question here is, what is his experience and his character? How have those things shaped him to view the world? So is he somebody who keeps in mind the crown of glory that will never fade away? Or is he somebody who's paralyzed by fear all the time? Is he somebody who has the spiritual vision to see what the devil is up to in the world? Or is he the kind of guy that's going to fall into one of the devil's traps because he doesn't see that? He doesn't have that kind of perspective. And when people come his way in the congregation and they're, they're pulling at him to do this or do that, is he going to listen to all of those people and do what they say? Or does he believe that he shouldn't be afraid of anyone for judgment belongs to God? Is he a man of perspective? Is he a man of vision? As you consider the candidates that you're going to nominate, I want you to keep these three categories in mind. We're looking for men of character, men of experience, and men of vision. Do you remember Ghostbusters? Uh, for the record, I don't think any of those guys would qualify as an elder at this church. <laughs> you remember the line, though, who you going to call? Okay, let's try something. I want you to imagine yourself for just a moment. <clears throat> and you've gotten some bad news. Maybe it's devastating news. Maybe you've gotten a bad diagnosis. You've lost somebody you love. You've made some terrible decision. You've ruined some relationship. Maybe you've lost your job. You're broken. Now, who are you going to call? You know, what man would you want to see walking through the door to pick you up, to set you back on your feet? I want you to think about that face that comes to mind, and I want you to consider nominating that man to be an elder of this church. Why? Okay, probably he's a man of experience, or else he wouldn't be able to understand what you're going through. You know, probably he's a man of character or else he wouldn't be the kind of guy you would want to trust with the burdens and brokenness of your heart. And probably he's a man of vision or else he would be totally unhelpful in helping you see a way forward in this really dark time. Right? It's just a test to help you narrow down these lists of qualities. But won't you consider nominating that man? And last of all, let me, make, let me make this really important point. Have you noticed as we read through these five lists that all the lists are different? Doesn't that frustrate anybody else? You know, if there was one kind of man that God wanted to be an elder of his people for all time, wouldn't you expect all five lists to be the same? You know, why are they different? Well, I think the answer to that's, that's really easy. Because in each place, each time one of these lists was written, there's a different context in mind. So Moses is looking for elders to help as he's leading God's people through the wilderness. That was a really specific time in Israel's history, and they had specific needs because of it. Titus and Timothy are these young and fledgling churches. Timothy's a little bit older than Titus. Titus is probably certainly does not have elders at this point. Timothy's might, right? You've got some different dynamics going on there in terms of just being a young church just trying to make its way against false teachers and bad doctrine that's out there. So they're looking for some specific things. Peter's church is enduring real persecution. So they're looking for some unique things at their church. I want you to think about that. You know, you've got these lists of 50 qualities that we've narrowed down into three kind of helpful categories. But if you were going to write a letter to me, and let's call it First Eric, 
Okay. If you were going to write a letter and call it first, Eric, what qualities would you instruct me to look for in addition to these transcendent qualities, character, experience, vision? Or another way to ask this is what does our water taste like? You know, what's going on inside our water that we need our elders to give attention to? We need the kind of men whose character will interact rightly with that water and shape us into the kind of environment that we need to be most here. You know, ask yourself this question. What does our water taste like here? What does our water taste like? I've I've thought about that a little bit. A couple things come to mind. So let me challenge you with these, and then I think you're probably going to have your own, and I want you to consider those as you nominate elders over the next few weeks. Here's a couple things that come to mind for me. I believe that Highland is a church that is committed to the life-changing power of the gospel, and we need men who are committed to that. I think about Brett Curtis, who leads the Friends Speak ministry, a study of the gospel of Luke with people from all sorts of countries that leads that here in our building. He is committed to the life-changing power of the gospel. I think about David Jackson, who led our communion here, and he teaches Bible at a local school here in our city, committed to the life-changing power of the gospel. We're a diverse church, and we're increasingly diverse. One of the commitments our elders have made, one of their hopeful prayers, is that our eldership will more and more reflect the diversity of our church and our city. We are a suburban church, But one of the critiques we got when we moved to the suburbs was that we were abandoning the city, right? Well, let me tell you, we are more involved in the city of Memphis than we have ever been. We are a suburban church, but we care deeply about the city of Memphis, and we need elders who share that burden and concern. I think about Ron Wade and Barry Mitchell and their work with Hope Works. I think about Randy McPherson, who is an administrator in Memphis City Schools. We need men who care deeply about our city. We're a generous church. You know, this church gives away over a half a million dollars every year to missions and ministries around the world. We need elders who are generous, right? who aren't greedy, which is one of the qualities that's described here, but who give freely because that's going to shape the environment of this church and their generosity is going to rub off on you and it's going to rub off on me. We take the formation of our young people really seriously here. I think about that with our our youth group and our children's ministry. I'm reminded of Wayne Simpson, one of our elders who has gone to Highland Camp, our church camp every summer for years because he cares about our young people. I think about Dave Kelly who works alongside our youth group often and has done that for years. We need men who care about the formation of our young people. We're a church that's deeply committed to spiritual formation. You see that in our Bible classes and our spiritual retreats. I think about Jay Shapley. I think about Gary Bloom, who have been leading Bible classes at this church for many years. We're making a significant investment in missions, both in Memphis and around the world. I think about David Ralston, who has taken over 100 trips to Ukraine in his time as an elder of this church. I think about Sam Liao, who helped us to launch a new mission work in China last year that is thriving. And multiple people have now been baptized in China, in part because of Sam Liao's character. Do you see that? I think about Jimmy Atkins, who just returned from Papua New Guinea. I think about Gerald Jerkins, who just got back from Guatemala performing surgeries on people who can't afford medical care there. I think about these men who are committed to the mission work of God around the world, and we need more men like that. We prioritize worship here at this place because we believe that your time in worship shapes your whole week. And I already talked about that. Not only does it shape your week, it shapes your life. I think about David Ralston, who's often advocating for new microphones. That's the joke, right? But those matter. 
David has led this church in worship for over 30 years. He cares deeply about the worship of God's people. We're a family church. We believe that family is important. I think about Jerry Midyet. I think about Larry Houck. I think about, you know, you know, Jerry has been working with the Home Builders class for probably, what, 15 years, maybe 20 years? Started when they were young married. So they're not so young now, Right. And some of those men in that home builders class are going to be nominated to be elders of the church this year. And partly that is due to Jerry Midget's shepherding influence over them. We're a legacy church. We've been, we have a church that's been around for 90 years, which means we have over five generations in this church, if you look at it, right? We need men like Larry Howe who have shepherded us through really difficult seasons in those years. I mean, okay, so those are the things that make up the water of this church as I think about it. But you're seeing other things in those, this water. You're tasting different stuff. And you want our water to taste differently still. I need you to prayerfully nominate the men who've got the right stuff inside to make the environment here the right, safe, righteous place it needs to be. Can you do that for me? I'd sure appreciate it. The last thing we want are some dead beta fish swimming around here, right? Actually, dead beta fish are pretty high on my list. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we know that you have prepared men for this role in this time. Help us to find those men. Help us to honor and glorify you by the men that we identify to lead us into our future. May it be your future. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. I cry out for your hand of mercy to heal me.